Welcome to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. This is an overarching compilation of all of the work done on this project throughout the course of the spring semester of 2021. This project was part of an assignment for a class called Joyce's Ulysses at Boston College, where we spent the entire semester exclusively working on James Joyce's Ulysses. When I signed up for this class, honestly, it was mostly as a bit with a lot of my friends. I didn't understand how impactful it would be, nor how much work it would end up being. At the end of the day, I really appreciate all the time that I've spent working on this novel throughout the semester. And I, I say working on because I really wasn't just reading it, nor was anybody else. We were all really working towards fully understanding this text. And it's a beast of a book. It is not for the lighthearted. Our professor was clear on day one that that was that that was going to end up being true, and it was. As you'll hear throughout all of these episodes that have been compiled together, I struggled with this book a lot, and I often spend my time on these episodes talking about what confused me most, what angered me most, the things I most of the time didn't end up liking all that much about each chapter. But I, I promise that I really did like the book, and I really hope that my intention that comes across as you listen to these episodes is that I'm trying to discuss this book with a friend and maybe that friend is myself, maybe it's a created listener in my head as if I was really a famous podcaster talking about Ulysses. I just wanted this project to read as more of a conversation than a dictation, to read as an extension of the collaborative process that we were going through in class as a team trying to work through this book. Every class, we spent the bulk of our time looking at individual lines, looking at very tiny, tiny passages, and picking apart this book in detail. And so what I wanted to do was create something that felt like a conversation with a classmate after class where we were like, hey, you know, I actually wasn't sure about that one thing. Can we go back and look at it closer? The original concept for this podcast was going to be as if I was talking to an alien about the book or as if an alien was reading Ulysses, which served as much of the credit for the title. What it ended up being was what was most alien to me and how I went through the process of becoming familiar. So enjoy listening to about an hour's worth of me talking and I'll be including a little outro at the end. Welcome to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. For my overarching podcast project for my seminar-style class at my university, I'll be selecting the images, moments, and motifs featured in the novel Ulysses by James Joyce that feel most alien to me, or that were the most opaque in terms of my understanding of the novel as I muddle my way through. I'll then take some time during this podcast to explain how I became familiar with these once foreign concepts and why I feel they're so important to my understanding of the book now. But first, for some background knowledge on this intimidating novel. Although background information may seem redundant to the informed reader, doing some research on the text itself was helpful to my contextualization of the novel going in. 
According to Wikipedia, Ulysses by James Joyce was originally published in installments in the American journal The Little Review between March 1918 and December 1920, and was finally published in full in Paris on February 2, 1922, which also happened to be James Joyce's 40th birthday. Discovering that this behemoth text was initially published in smaller volumes was quite comforting in terms of my nervousness at the thought of tackling this book. Knowing that Joyce's original intention was for this novel to not be devoured, but savored in smaller bites, eased my worry at being able to take on all 644 pages of the Gabler edition. This text originally being in smaller portions also made me even more excited about translating my journey with Ulysses into podcast form. Joyce and I both had the same idea when it comes to breaking down this text. Anyway, into chapter one. We begin the chapter with what I believe to be the most opaque portion. Stately, plump, Buck Mulligan beginning a shaving ritual that was bathed in blasphemy. The implication by Joyce that Mulligan's shaving process was meant to imitate and mock a Catholic mass was puzzling to me. My preconception of the Irish is that they love to be Catholic, in part because I come from an Irish Catholic family. I was very surprised to find the opening motif of the novel infused with jokes and jabs at Catholic ritual individuals. Mulligan's taunt of Stephen Dedalus, calling him a fearful Jesuit, was simply confusing to me. However, as the chapter went on, it became more and more apparent that Mulligan's taunts were meant to betray a much deeper conflict within our protagonist, Stephen Dedalus. Having recently declined to pray over his dying mother and reeling from that guilt, one of the first facets of Stephen's complicated relationship with the world that we encounter is his relationship with religion. Being primed to know that religion is going to play a big part in the life and mind of Stephen Dedalus by the opening of chapter one was incredibly important to my understanding, as it opened the door into the troubled mind of Stephen, with his cursed Jesuit strain, only it's injected the wrong way. Going forward throughout the novel, I wonder how Stephen's guilt is going to continue to be morphed by religion, or if it will become less burdensome with time. I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Thank you for listening to this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. Although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking through this with you certainly helped me. See you next time. Welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. On the last episode of this podcast, I discussed my introduction to the text and how the religious motifs in chapter one acted as an opening to begin understanding the troubled mind of the protagonist of this novel, Stephen Dedalus. This time, I want to go from more broad processing of concepts to looking at and understanding a specific quote that compelled me to take a closer look at this text. If you're following along with the Gabler edition, you'll find what I'm looking at on page 23 at approximately line 162. In long, shaky strokes, Sergeant copied the data. Waiting always for a word of help, his hand moved faithfully the unsteady symbols, a faint hue of shame flickering behind his dull skin. Amarmatri, subjective and objective genitive. With her weak blood and waste-sour milk, she had fed him and hid from sight of others his swaddling bands. It was the Latin in this quote that made it feel so alien to me. As someone deeply unfamiliar with Latin, I have had to do a decent amount of stopping and starting as I pause to look up what the Latin phrases that are sprinkled into this text mean, and this one was the most striking to me. Amor matri simply means love of mother, but I think it means much more here. 
In this scene of the novel, Stephen Dedalus is helping to tutor a young boy, Sergeant, who is especially struggling with arithmetic. In this quote, Stephen is explicitly describing the writings and demeanor of Sergeant, but I think that Sergeant serves a more important purpose as a symbol of the shame Stephen feels about his relationship with his own mother. Amor matri, meaning love of mother, means that the sentiment Stephen expresses goes both ways. He is both describing the love of a child by their mother and the love of a mother by their child, the subjective and objective. I think that the faint hue of shame flickering behind Sargent's dull skin is a reflection of the burning flame of guilt that is consuming Stephen. By seeing himself in Sargent and being able to help the boy with a concrete problem, Stephen is able to suppress, if not remedy, some of the guilt he feels about not caring for his mother at the end of her life through caring for and helping little boys that are as lost and as shameful as he feels. This interaction was very helpful to me in further unlocking the psyche of Stephen Dedalus because it offered me important insight into how he was moving through the immense shame and guilt that was introduced in chapter one. What lingered with me most after I read chapter one was how Stephen's guilt was going to continue to manifest over time and whether or not he would let it fester or genuinely work through it. In this instance, I feel that Stephen is doing a little bit of both, or rather has just begun the journey to healing but is not quite ready to let go of his shame yet. It may seem as though I am reading a lot into one small phrase of Latin, but I believe that Joyce's vagueness when it came to this phrase was intentionally designed to give the reader pause about Stephen's relationships with his students, his mother, and himself at this moment. Having to take the time to research the Latin used here certainly helped me in making sense of this chapter and of Stephen Dedalus as a character overall. Looking forward to chapter 3, I'm curious to see how Stephen's guilt continues to morph and bleed out of his stream of consciousness inner dialogue into his real life. I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Thank you for listening to this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. Although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this through with you certainly helped me. See you next time. Welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. Previously on this podcast, I discussed how one of the Latin quotes that was mixed into the text of chapter 2 was really crucial to me understanding Stephen Dedalus and the burdens that he's carrying as he's moving through this novel. In this segment, I want to move from talking about Stephen's greet to a moment of, well, for now let's just call it relief. If you're following along with the Gabler edition of Ulysses, the moment I'm choosing to dive into today occurs in chapter 3 on page 41 between lines 434 and 460. Upon my first reading of this passage, I truly thought that Stephen was just having a particularly vivid daydream. When I initially read the lines, touch me, soft eyes, soft, soft hand, I am lonely here. I thought that Stephen was imagining the touch of a lost lover, which I think in the end ended up being accurate. As I read on, I admittedly did not pick up on anything more concrete in the subtext of this section. However, once it was revealed to me during the class session where we discussed this portion of the novel that this passage describes Stephen masturbating on the Strand in Sandy Cove, Dublin, I realized that much more was unfamiliar to me about this chapter than I had realized upon my first reading. As I read this chapter for a second time, phrases like, In a long lasso's from the cock lake, and I shall wait, no, they will pass on, passing, chafing against the low rocks, swirling, passing, better get this job over quick. 
did not pass me by as easily as they did upon my first time going through. Being shown the real nature of this passage made me appreciate that much more about this text is alien than I thought it would be, and encouraged me to ensure I'm taking a much closer read of the chapters before I arrive to class, especially the portions that seem the most innocuous or simple. It also helped me to make a lot more sense of the dense and confusing stream of consciousness that is chapter 3 of this novel. Knowing that this chapter had a quite literal climax helped me make sense of the passage of time as I moved through my reading of this chapter on my second round going through. It led me also to wonder if there was going to be more sex and masturbation featured in future chapters of this novel, and helped me to understand how Stephen is handling his guilt and shame, which is one of the primary things I was left wondering at the end of chapter 2. Next time, we'll be moving into a chapter featuring Mr. Leopold Bloom, so I'm curious to see how this new male protagonist relates to the one with whom we've been acquainted so far. I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Thank you for listening to this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. Although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this through with you certainly helped me. See you next time! Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 4 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Calypso. As I read this chapter, I couldn't help but be particularly struck by all the sexuality expressed by our newly future protagonist, Mr. Bloom, and how it differed from the sexual thoughts expressed by our previous protagonist, Stephen Dedalus. Male sexuality has been one of the things that has been most opaque to me as we've gone through this novel. I often end up coming to class to be thrown through a complete loop about a masturbation reference I missed in my own first pass on the chapter. Initially, my missing of these references was something I chalked up to my own naivete, but as we're introduced to Mr. Bloom and his own sexual thoughts and expressions, I'm starting to believe that male sexual thought is something I'm simply unfamiliar with and have never considered within a literary context before, which makes it difficult to interpret when it's explicit and even more difficult to catch when it's subtle. Take, for example, Bloom's objectification of the woman in front of him in line at the butcher shop. He finds such beauty in the swing of her hips that he even attempts to rush at the butcher so that he can follow her on her journey home in order to watch her walk. This level of infatuation with a complete stranger, to the point of wanting other complete strangers to bend to one's desire in order to follow this particularly attractive person home, is something that I, and I'm willing to guess most women, cannot relate to. As a woman, it's scary enough to navigate the world as it is, and I can't imagine taking action that would inspire anxiety in a woman against another person, such as following them home. This is not at all to say that Bloom is a bad person for having these thoughts. The frequency with which men seem to want to and do follow women in our current world makes you think that these thoughts are extremely normal and common for a man to have. But this expression of sexual desire was jarring to me in two different ways. First, the more solitary sexuality of Stephen, expressed only via carefully disguised masturbation, strongly juxtaposes Bloom's over-expressions of his sexuality. Going from Stephen's covert and even anxious masturbatory endeavors to Bloom's seemingly constant stream of aggressive sexual internal thought gave me pause as we transitioned into his stream of consciousness in this episode. 
and second, Bloom's subsequent actions throughout the chapter make him seem deeply subservient to Molly, so this more dominant thought pattern and process feels out of character. Or, I suppose it could be perhaps Bloom reclaiming his sexual identity outside of his relationship with Molly. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking through this chapter and Bloom's sexual expression with you has certainly helped me in my interpretation. I look forward to talking to you soon. See you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 5 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as The Lotus Eaters. This chapter title is a reference to the section of the Odyssey where Odysseus and his crew run into a gaggle of people eating lotus flowers, end up eating some themselves, and feeling so relaxed they never want to go home or finish their journey. Like the Lotus Eaters, our protagonist Leopold Bloom is most certainly concentrating on relaxation and play in this chapter. The constant and pervasive nature of sexual thought in this chapter was genuinely surprising to me. Even though we encountered a good amount of it in chapter 4, the impression I took away from the Calypso version of Mr. Bloom was that although he may fantasize about sex when he's out and about, it's not always at the very top of his mind. This chapter, however, paints a picture of the contrary. Even as he heads to and attends a funeral, Bloom is consistently wrapped up in sexual thought. I suppose what surprised me the most about it all was the masochistic needs Bloom seems to have. In particular, the passage, Go further next time, naughty boy. Punish. Afraid of words, of course. Brutal? Why not? Try it anyhow. A bit at a time. From page 64 of the Gabler edition, struck me as particularly interesting. I think it was a bold and thought-provoking choice by Joyce to make one of his male protagonists such a subservient masochist. In the modern Western world, men are generally expected to be the more dominant partners in both sex and in life, which, if we're going to stray away from heteronormativity, also causes issues of competition between gay men. And so, it's striking when a male author makes the choice to actively portray a male character, a protagonist no less, as sexually subservient and into a kink that is largely reserved for female characters, and the overall characterization of women by the popular media. This book being written in 1922 makes it all the more unanticipated, although I do suppose that the chaos of the Roaring Twenties was as ripe a time as any to explore one's sexual interests. I'm interested to see how many more of these Bloom-centered chapters continue to explore Bloom's sexual desires, and whether or not Molly's infidelity comes to play a more explicit role in Bloom's desire to be dominated. Even if it didn't end up helping you understand Ulysses more, although I hope it did, talking this chapter and Bloom's need to be subservient and be dominated by women through with you certainly helped me. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin.
In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 6 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Hades. What has become a running theme for me throughout my reading and discussion of this novel is my difficulty understanding specifically male emotions, whether they're sexual in nature or simply unique to the male experience. This is something I've always struggled with while reading male-centric literature, but it's something that has become a particular roadblock for me while reading Ulysses, due to the fact that the two leading men of the book have such different patterns of inner thought, and it has been hard enough for me to understand the inner workings of one male protagonist's mind in the past, let alone two. However, one of the things that has been most striking to me in this episode was the different portrayals of fatherhood by Bloom and Simon Dedalus. Simon, on the way to Patty Dignam's funeral with Bloom, berates his son, who they see out of the carriage window, and insults the aunt and uncle that Stephen is on his way to visit. This beratement of the family and mistreatment of a son by his father sends Bloom into a spiral about the loss of his own son Rudy and how different his life may have been had Rudy lived. I imagine Bloom's rage and sadness at Simon Daedalus's insults of his son to be outrageous. If only he had had a son who had grown up to be old enough to get into trouble, or his own father to look to for advice as he navigates his unmourned position as a sonless father and a fatherless son. Bloom's reflections in this chapter make the title Hades even more dynamic and perfectly suited. Sure, the chapter is explicitly discussing death in the sense that a funeral takes place between its pages, but the presence of death in this novel is infused in every line of the chapter, as Bloom grieves his son and the life he lost along with Rudy. Looking forward, I hope to learn more about how Bloom is coping with the loss of his son and with his father, and how these losses may have played a part of the reason that he has been so passive in his own life since Rudy passed away. Death is a really tricky thing to write about, but Joyce excels in how he explains the way death has infused itself into Bloom's life, and I appreciate this chapter as a method for more clarity for me when it comes to unpacking these opaque leading men. Anyway, thank you for listening. Although going through this chapter of Ulysses may not have helped your understanding of Bloom's complexities, it certainly helped me. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 7 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Aeolus. This chapter was by far the most confusing to me of the lot. The newspaper-style structure, although it makes sense in the context where we physically are in the novel, the newspaper office, was something I found very difficult to follow in terms of how much it jumped around from perspective to perspective and story to story. The headline I found most compelling and easiest to understand was Omnium Gatherum, where the men are all discussing the many great talents of the people that they know, and they specifically mentioned Molly Bloom as the vocal muse around line 610. The suggestion here, since Lenahan seems to add this comment out of the side of his mouth for a laugh, is that the gate he's discussing is, in fact, Molly's, and that he most certainly did not catch a cold from his time in the park. This suggestion about Molly outside of Bloom's presence confirms that he is not the only one who knows of her extramarital affair, or should I say now, affairs. 
I've heard that one of the later chapters in the book is told from Molly's perspective, so I look forward to hearing more about her own inner dialogue regarding her escapades, but I found the information that Molly's affairs extend outside of Mr. Boylan to be very striking, especially because of the general lack of character development for women thus far in the novel. The fact that this has been the primary character development for Molly thus far, other than her being gruff to Bloom early in the morning and her knowledge of her primary affair with Boylan, rings true of Joyce's general portrayal of women in the text so far as two-dimensional background and supporting characters. When we do arrive at Molly's chapter, I wonder what the inside of her mind will look like, and how it will differ from Stephen and Bloom's inner narratives, whether or not this moment will come back into relevance. We'll have to wait and see. Thank you for muddling through this chapter of Ulysses with me. Although it may not have helped your understanding of the novel, even though I hope it did, it certainly helped me. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 8 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Lestragonians. I know that the last few episodes of this podcast have been quite Leopold Bloom-heavy, but hey, my mission here is to parse out the things that most confuse and intrigue me, and Mr. Bloom has certainly done both. When we were first introduced to Bloom, I treated it as a welcome respite from the ever-swirling inner workings of the mind of Stephen Dedalus. However, Bloom has become much more complex than he initially seemed at least in my opinion. These lines truly perplex me in that they don't seem to line up with the overall cuckoldish way Bloom seems to interact with both the men and women in his life. He is subservient to the men in his interactions, always the first to hide or defer from conflict, and he is subservient to Molly in that he completely ignores her affair and even ensures that he is not home for an appointment with her lover. It further doesn't connect with the way Bloom calls himself a naughty boy in Calypso. Surely Bloom wants to be dominated, not be the dominator. But, on the other hand, maybe the aggressive nature with which Bloom fantasizes about his secret pen pals comes from the lack of control and masculinity he feels throughout the rest of his life. As I disentangled in prior episodes, I discovered that Bloom is a man adrift, who lacks firm identity or confidence in, well, anything. For him to suddenly have dominant fantasies felt on its face out of character. But then again, a man who's out of control will likely desperately grab onto any means of control he can get, such as putting on a macho persona for the female pen pals he keeps. This also signals a return to traditional ideas about masculinity by Joyce, which I find curious in the sense that he had deviated so far from those characteristics with his construction of Bloom as a character so far in the novel. I know we switched back to Stephen's perspective in episode 9, but I'll be curious to see where Bloom goes in his letter writing campaign as the more dominant Henry Flower. Will he continue to take on this hypermasculine persona and extend it into his real life, or will his subservient nature begin to trickle into his writing? In any case, thank you for muddling through these ideas from Lestragonians with me. Although it may not have helped your understanding of Ulysses, it certainly helped mine. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time. Back to an alien's journey through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin.
this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 9 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Scylla and Charybdi. As we know well at this point, Joyce assigned an organ of the body to each chapter of this text. In the case of Chapter 9, we'll be embarking on exploring Joyce's demonstration of the brain. The brain feels like an apt organ to describe the tone and structure of this chapter. Honestly, I had gotten quite used to the straightforwardness of going through Bloom's thoughts in the chapters prior. Not to say that they were easier to read, but just that I was able to see the thread connecting Bloom's thoughts much more clearly than I can when we, the readers, inhabit the mind of Stephen. Coming back into the brain of Stephen during this episode was jarring at the very least, and mildly unpleasant at the most. Stephen's thoughts, in my opinion, really reflect the physical structure of the brain and the way that they fold into each other in ways that look on the outside strange, but are clearly connected once you get a deeper look at them. One passage that I felt was particularly helpful in deciphering some of the interconnectedness that has often eluded me in Stephen's chapters was from about lines 825 to 845. The quote on line 844, Amal Matri, subjective and objective genitive may be the only true thing in life, brought me directly back to chapter 2 when Stephen muses about the concept of Amal Matri and his connection to his mother after her death. It made me wonder if his grief in response to the way he handled her death has caused him to ruminate on having his only true parent die, and how he's now left with the man who cared for him perhaps only out of economic and social obligation. His discussion on how his son's growth is his father's decline, his youth his father's envy, his friend his father's enemy, later down in lines 855 and 856, give me an even stronger sense that Stephen truly buys into the idea that the mother is the only true parent, and he has now been left alone to be the son of a man he distrusts. I wonder if these feelings have also impacted Stephen's view on marriage and whether or not that may be a primary factor in his perpetual single status. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses better, talking through episode 9 with you has certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey to Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. episode of An Alien's Journey to Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 10 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Wandering Rocks. The guide for Ulysses, which I've been leaning on heavily throughout this whole semester, describes Chapter 10 as a sort of mini-Ulysses that encompasses a lot of the themes of the book in all the small sections that are included. This structure, although it was refreshing in the sense that it was a departure from occupying only Stephen's mind, was something I found very difficult to navigate and to connect to emotionally. Even though the inner workings of both Stephen and Bloom's minds can be complicated to wade through, they're at the very least consistent, and I found this chapter to be pretty jarring. However, there is one section in particular that I had a strong emotional connection with. Between lines 1155 and 1175, we get a peek into the mind of Patrick Digging Jr. after the death of his father. Although his age is never explicitly stated, he's likely a boy of about 8 to 10 based on the way he talks about returning to school being a major anxiety after the funeral. I love this section because I appreciated its entirely different perspective on the course of events for the day. At least in my reading of the book, Patty Dignam's funeral feels more like an opportunity for the interaction of characters than a moment of genuine mourning for all of the adults who were described as in attendance in earlier chapters. This section goes to show how any singular event can be so different for all of the people experiencing it. Patty Dignam's funeral was a part of Bloom's Day, but it was a major moment of trauma for Patrick Jr. that he'll remember for the rest of his life. 
I think this portion was really important in illustrating what I feel is one of the main points of Ulysses taking place over the course of one singular day. Every day is different, which means that every day has the potential to be joyful, heartbreaking, or simply neutral for all the different people who live through it. This section also made me think a lot about the death of my grandmother last year and how frustrating it was when the world was seemingly moving on without me. Her funeral took place on a Tuesday, and it was so strange to be hearing about my friend's classes on that day when I had just been to the funeral of one of the most important people in my life. My life stopped, so it was very weird that nobody else's did. I think Patrick Daniel Jr. feels a similar frustration when he talks about how all the boys will know from the newspaper by the time he gets back to school on Monday. For him, his life has changed forever, but for them, it'll maybe be a sad thought upon their first interaction with him, but then they'll move on with their days, and it won't be at the top of their minds like it will be his. That's the interesting thing about grief, I think. Everyone has felt grief at one point or another, so most of us know what it feels like, but it can be really difficult to know what to do when someone else is feeling it. I know this section of the chapter is small in the context of the rest of the points made throughout Wandering Rocks, and even smaller in the context of the whole novel, but I think it does a subtly powerful job of summarizing some of Joyce's thoughts about the nature of this novel and the grief it holds within its pages. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this chapter through with you certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. Bloom spends so much mental energy during this book spying on and conjecturing about Boylan and Molly's planned rendezvous. Why does he consistently refuse to take action against it? Boylan is quite literally right in front of him, and Bloom will still not approach him man-to-man to have a conversation about Boylan's affair with his wife. I know we've talked at length about Bloom's insecurity, but I can't imagine a husband, no matter how insecure they may be, seeing the person who is literally screwing his wife on the side in real life and not immediately taking action. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 11 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Sirens. This chapter engages in one of the more explicit references to the Odyssey that has been included in the text thus far. At the start of the chapter, no, the overture is not the start, which is true of any overture preceding any form of art, presenting us with two very clear sirens of bronze and gold, Miss Deuce and Miss Kennedy. Much of the chapter is spent dealing with the interactions of these two women and the men they serve at the Ormond Hotel, and for good reason, their tactics for seduction are clear and pronounced. But I think that one of the more meaningful moments of this chapter takes place in lines 457 and 458. They read, Bloom heard a jing, a little sound. He's off. Light sob of breath, Bloom sighed unto the silent blue-hued flowers. Jingling. He's gone. Jingle. Here. I thought this delicately placed moment of heartbreak as Bloom realizes that Boylan is really truly about to go have his appointment with Molly serves as a really good touchdown to reality in this chapter that seems to be focused on the hypersexual fantasies of the sirens and the men that they are seducing. Miss Kennedy and Miss Deuce's failed attempts at seducing Boylan through their teasing of the other men at the Ormond, playing to this idea that the situation at the Ormond Hotel dining room is one based on the fantasies and desires of those within its walls. And Boylan's resistance of their temptations and true pursuit of his real goal cements Boylan and Molly's affair as a tangible and crushing reality for Bloom. I also found this moment deeply frustrating, however. Do I feel bad for Bloom? Of course I do. He's in a really tough situation. 
But at this point, the only thing that's preventing him from action is cowardice, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the rest of the picture of Bloom is painted throughout the remaining pages of the novel, and seeing if that image colors how I view Bloom now. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses better, talking this chapter through with you has certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. to an alien's journey through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of an alien's journey through Ulysses, we'll be talking about chapter 12 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Cyclops. So everyone's been talking this whole time about how funny this book is, and I honestly haven't really gotten any of that. Whenever our professor points out moments that are supposed to be funny in class, yeah, I usually laugh then, but I think I'm trying to read this book so academically that a lot of the funny moments go over my head in my desperate attempts to grasp the deeper meaning of what I'm reading. However, this chapter was hilarious. There were so many moments that made me genuinely laugh as I was reading along. Honestly, being able to laugh as I was reading felt like a huge relief to me. I'm starting to feel like less of a novice reader, finally, which is so exciting. One of the funniest moments to me in this chapter is the Freudian slip by Bloom when he and Joe are talking about Molly on lines 766 to 769. Well, that's a point, says Bloom, for the wife's admirers. Whose admirers, says Joe? The wife's advisors, I mean, says Bloom. I don't know about you, but these lines clearly betray how tightly Molly has Bloom wound around her finger, and it really made me giggle. Of course, there are tons of funny moments throughout this chapter. Another favorite of mine being from the very start. Circumcised, says Joe. Aye, says I, a bit off the top. But Joyce giving us a chance to laugh about the very unfortunate situation Bloom has found himself in is something that I very much so appreciate. I'm really looking forward to being able to find these moments of humor throughout the rest of the book by myself going forward. It was such a treat with this chapter that I hope things don't end up getting so dark that there aren't any more for me to find. case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses better, talking with this chapter through with you has certainly helped me. A word of advice in this after this time. If you're going to read any chapter twice, I would definitely make it Cyclops. There are some things you might have missed. Alright, thanks for listening, and see you next time. Welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. As Virginia Woolf once said, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 13 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Nausicaa. This chapter, by far and away, is my absolute favorite of the book so far. I fear this may end up being a slightly unpopular opinion, but let me plead my case. By my English teacher trade, I'm most well-versed in the sentimental novels that were brought up to read in school. One of my favorite books to read and to teach is Jane Eyre, if that tells you anything at all about how much I really love a Victorian-era romance. I'm a sucker for big sweeping images and overly long immersive sentences and the intellectual presentation of romance for the reader. I can't help it. Which is why when I read the first 25 lines of this chapter, I was absolutely hooked. Even the first sentence, the summer evening had begun to fold the world into its mysterious embrace, perfectly encapsulate Joyce's attempts to use paintings as the art inspiration for this chapter. 
I think the images Joyce creates throughout Nausicaa are beautiful, and his intentional use of occasional run-on sentences really captures the fluidity needed to sell the sentimental style. However, I do want to address what many of my classmates are saying about this chapter being a parody of the sentimental novel. Honestly, I must simply disagree with them. Joyce certainly tweaks the form to fit his aesthetic and begins to paint more sickly sweet rather than totally innocent images as the episode progresses, but to say that these twists and refabrications of the form are inherently parody because they are different from the standard misses the mark, in my opinion, unfolding this chapter into the rest of one's understanding of the text. Joyce is constantly using a myriad of techniques throughout the chapters of this book. Brain direct discourse, playwriting, newspaper headlines, poetry, lyrics, I could go on. But none of them were called into question as parody as we read along as a class. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of any sort of misogyny, but the conversations that I had with male classmates on the day we covered this chapter mirrored some I had had in other courses surrounding the sentimental novel and whether or not it counted as serious literature. And it felt like my conversations with my male peers reflected that idea, that the sentimental style couldn't possibly be taken seriously, and that was very subtly and quietly due to the fact that this is one of the first kinds of literature that was openly popularized by female authors. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to make any statements about any of my classmates as I discuss this, but I'm rather using this as a chance to reflect on how gender bias may still influence a modern reader and their own thoughts on the more traditional forms of literature and their merit. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses better, talking this chapter through with you has certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. I will throw something in here that I didn't hate entirely so that you all don't think I'm oversimplifying my opinion of this chapter. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 14 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Oxen of the Sun. Going into reading this chapter, we got warned by our professor and by the Ulysses Guide that this chapter would likely be the one that people struggle with the most. If people don't stop reading the book after Syl and Charybdis, they said, they almost always stop about midway through Oxen. And to be totally honest with you, I probably would have stopped reading too if finishing this monster of a text wasn't required for a class. Looking at the fact that we had about a quarter of the pages of the text left with only five chapters to go as I was trudging through Oxen was seriously disheartening. And the feedback I got from my professor on my last set of uploads to this project was that I needed less text summary and more of my own experience. So the honest version of my experience is that I hated this chapter. I hated every second I had spent reading and every single word of it. I thought that all of the parodies of different styles were confusing and the premise of the thing itself was just really irritating. I mean, seriously, drinking in a hospital? Why did Joyce think that this would come off as funny in any way? And if we didn't mean it to be funny, are we genuinely meant to believe that drinking while someone's in labor is a true show of support for them? I don't think so. Around line 333, Dixon teases Stephen about why he never became a priest, and Stephen answers back, obedience in the womb, chastity in the tomb, but involuntary poverty all his days. Dixon then suggests that Stephen couldn't be a priest because he isn't a virgin, but Stephen denies this steadily. Stephen citing not wanting to be poor on purpose for the sake of priesthood made me laugh. And I appreciate a look at Stephen's wit from the perspective of the arranger, as opposed to my own muddled attempts at understanding his intended tone when we occupy his mind in other chapters. 
I hope you don't take my hard take on Oxen of the Sun too personally, and I certainly wouldn't recommend you give up on the book at any point, especially not now when you're this far in. Just know that it's going to be tempting in this doozy of a chapter, and maybe you should have a glass of wine at hand when you're reading just to make the whole thing go down a little more smoothly. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this chapter through with you has certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 15 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Circe. As I mentioned in my prior episode, trudging through Oxen of the Sun was one of the absolute worst reading experiences of this semester, and maybe honestly my four-year career as an English major. But knowing I was about to get a huge switch up in format come Chapter 15 was one of the main things that was keeping me going. And I was not even close to disappointed. Even though Cersei feels about a million pages long, especially as compared to the hot and fast 30-page chapters we get in the former half of the text, going through Ulysses in the theatrical format made it all make a lot more sense to me. Before reading this chapter, it was honestly really hard to make sense of, well, anything we were reading when I read it by myself, and I wasn't really getting the fact that Ulysses is supposed to be a funny book. All of my male classmates spending each class period talking about how much each chapter made them laugh was really making me feel like there was something I wasn't grasping, and that maybe the old boys club of male authors and readers was going to succeed in keeping me out of the in-group, as I read and failed to get each chapter of this text. I get it now, though. There were a few moments in other chapters where I maybe chuckled, and mostly during class after someone explained why they were funny, but I was genuinely laughing out loud as I read this. Moments like around line 1300 where Zoe thinks Bloom is hard and he instead pulls out a shriveled potato are genuinely hilarious to me. That kind of low-grade humor makes Joyce feel more like a person to me instead of this big important author with a capital A, you know? I also appreciate the way he incorporated costume and set descriptions into this chapter, like it was a real play. It helped me to envision the characters as whole people, not just brains being piloted around by relatively nondescript bodies. Shout out to Joyce on this chapter. He really won me back after pushing me away with Oxen. I know we have some more playing with form coming up in the next few chapters, so I'm really excited to keep being excited about this book. I hope you enjoyed my rant about this chapter. Although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this chapter through with you certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 16 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Eumaeus. The stylistic description of this chapter that my class came up with was old-timey, and that really sits right with me when thinking about how this chapter unfolded. Even though it kind of felt like a stark return to the traditional format of Ulysses that we've been used to reading for most of the book, especially after how off the wall we went with Circe, it also felt like a return to normalcy and a nice reset of the pace before deep diving into the wildness of chapters 17 and 18. I really enjoyed how on top of this chapter feeling traditional in form, it was often traditional with a twist in terms of content as well. 
Take lines 251 and 252, for example. I don't mean to presume to dictate to you in the slightest degree, but why did you leave your father's house? To seek misfortune, was Stephen's answer. Joyce's reference to the book of Genesis and Abraham's quest to serve God, only to twist it to suit the pessimistic character of Stephen, felt like it honored the form of Joyce's adopting in this chapter. Abraham was called on to blindly leave his country, his family, and his father's household in pursuit of an unknown god and whatever fortune might await him. Stephen, knowing his mission, to seek misfortune, rejects the sense of nobility infused into Abraham's calling as he pursues not what is comfortable, but what is necessary in the eyes of God. Does Stephen view misfortune as his destiny? If so, why? Perhaps as a punishment for his lack of faith when he refused to pray over his mother as she lay dying? Or is he simply seeking adventure in a new way of life? Either way, Stephen and Abraham do have one thing in common. They are pursuing a higher goal, and Joyce leverages this comparison to add more depth to the character of Stephen. Including an explicit biblical allusion in this chapter makes me feel like we are approaching a coming-to-Jesus moment for our two main protagonists as we near the end of the text. Are these men about to meet their own God? In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this chapter through with you certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey to Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 17 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Ithaca. Here we are again with yet another hefty chapter. Although nothing can compare with Circe in terms of length, Ithaca certainly poses itself as a worthy opponent in terms of the mental agility needed to wade through its unique structure. Even though Joyce switching up structure between chapters has been one of the only things that has motivated me to get through this novel, the question and answer format of this chapter felt more like Bloom trying to work through the complexities of his own mind than the arranger attempting to help the reader get their foot more in the door in terms of understanding Bloom as was done through the narration of previous chapters. We were tasked with selecting which of the 309 questions present in the chapter was most striking to us. I'm going to recount to you which question was most striking to me and why. I chose lines 462 to 465. What events might nullify these calculations? The cessation of existence of both or either, the inauguration of a new era or calendar, the annihilation of the world and consequent extermination of the human species, inevitable but unpredictable. I picked this set of questions and answers for the primary reason of how flippant it felt given the tremendous weight of Bloom and Stephen's father-son relationship. As I've discussed in prior episodes, this functionally fatherless son and sonless father seem to have found a very special and specific bond, and their familial and nature connection has been one of the main areas of character development that has been driving the text. This is why this question stood out to me as confusing. Bloom's nihilism in his answer to this question feels out of character and unlike someone who has been clinging to this relationship with his representative son throughout the book. I wonder, though, if this is a signal that Bloom is beginning to give up on clinging to what once was and finally moving forward, after being stagnant for so long after the death of Rudy. I know this is our last chance to occupy the mind of Bloom in this text, so maybe this is Joyce's way of showing the reader that Bloom has done some healing and learning within these pages and will be embarking on a better path beyond the last page. In any case, although it may not have helped you to understand Ulysses more, talking this chapter through with you has certainly helped me. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
Hi, and welcome back to An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses. I'm your host, Olivia Tobin. In this episode of An Alien's Journey Through Ulysses, we'll be talking about Chapter 18 of Ulysses by James Joyce, otherwise known as Penelope. I'll be honest with you, listener. Getting through this book was hard. I didn't like it the vast majority of the time. I thought it was too dense and too masculine and too show-offish with its insane metaphors and ever-changing format. Even though they created interest, this book was incredibly complex to read, and I had a really hard time following. Honestly, if I wasn't reading this book for a course, I promise you I would have never, ever finished it. However, I am really glad that I did, and it's all because of Penelope. Finally, we get a woman who's not so two-dimensional. A woman who has wants and desires and needs that she forms for on her own, not that a man prescribes for her. A woman who has sex and who loves to do it and who does it for its her... A woman who has sex and who loves to do it and who does it for herself. Getting inside the head of Molly Bloom and Penelope is exactly what this book needed to round things out, and it was seriously very redeeming for me. The primary reason why Penelope really sold the book for me was Molly's thoughts about sex. We talked about sex throughout the... the we talked about sex throughout this entire book as something dirty, something done with the lights off, something done very quietly and very secretively, and it was very bad to be doing it at all. We talked about sex throughout this entire book as something dirty, something done with the lights off, in secret, very quietly, and it was very bad that anyone was doing it at all. Even worse were the conceptions of masturbation. We were giving in-depth accounts of internal monologues that were had while masturbating in public, a literal crime. Even worse were the conceptions of masturbation. We were given in-depth accounts of internal monologues had while masturbating in public, a literal crime. And we talked about all this And we talked about it all this long And we talked about it all semester long as if they were normal And we talked about those moments all semester long as if they were normal and healthy representations of And we talked all semester long about and we talked all semester long as if these were normal and healthy representations of sex. And all of a sudden, we're gearing up for Penelope and all the guys in the class and the Ulysses Guide itself talk about how Penelope is so gross and over the top and dirty. But you want to know the secret, listener? It's none of those things. It's honest. Penelope has the only honest and happy accounts of sex in this entire book, and I was thrilled to read them. Molly talks at length about how much Boylan makes her scream and how much good the sex... Molly talks at length about how... Boy- Molly talks at length about how much Boylan makes her scream and how good the sex makes her feel and how romantic and great her affair with Boylan is. And you know what I say? Good for her. I'm glad a person in this book has a good relationship with sex, and I'm especially glad that a woman in this book is finally given some sexual agency instead of being treated as a target for sexual intention by men. And I'm especially glad that she's feeling good doing it. One of the main roadblocks to me liking this book as we read it all along was its relationship with sex, so I'm really glad to have seen it redeemed in the final chapters. In any case, talking through this whole book with you may not have helped you, but it certainly helped me. Thanks for sticking around this long, and thank you for listening. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of An Alien's Journey to Ulysses. Although... I don't really know if I'm at the end of my journey with Ulysses. As we've talked about a lot in our class, I think Ulysses can only be reread. 
And so I tend upon holding on to my copy of the Gabler edition for a very, very long time, and hopefully I can find some time to revisit it one day. But I just want to say thank you for listening. If anyone out there has listened to these episodes at all, besides my professor, who, hello, as you're grading this, um, thank you for listening to me ramble on. A lot of these episodes have a strange, strangely high number of plays, so if you've been listening, I hope you enjoyed and if you want to go for Ulysses yourself, I highly recommend doing so. I highly recommend doing it for a second time. If you've already read it once before and you're here getting some new perspective, I hope what I have to say, I hope what I have to say has maybe taken some of the pressure off of reading something that's such a classic with a capital C and important with a capital I. My point here was for this to be an experience with a friend. And if you've been listening to these episodes, I hope you feel like you've made a friend with me as I feel like I've made a friend with you. So thank you very much. I hope you have a fabulous rest of your literary journey, if you've been listening. And I really hope you take a crack at Ulysses one day because if you haven't, embarking on such a challenge can be really great honestly, for your own self-esteem. To finish such a huge project requires a lot of discipline and dedication to yourself. And so one of the best things Ulysses taught me is that taking time to explore my own mind is something that is worthwhile. And that's kind of a refreshing thing to hear after four years of, you know, being told to find the right answers. And this has been an exercise in muddling through the wrong ones. So, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you around. Bye-bye.